What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Our good friends at Goldman Sachs, kind of a tough quarter. You know, I don't feel sorry for them because they win a lot more than they don't. I competed against them for many, many years uh, with some success, but always, always tough competitors everywhere you go. Um, Somebody who's also followed this company for a long, long time, Allison Williams, uh, Bloomberg Intelligence. She's her senior banks analyst. And you know what? She's also a suit. She's now management. She runs the I've U.S. Heard. business for Bloomberg Intelligence. So it's like, you know, now she's a suit. She's a boss. You're a boss now. Yeah. Exactly. You were totally. a boss before. No, Paul only so. says that because I have tough <laughs> shoes to fill. <laughs> so, uh, you know, Allison, I don't know. Talk to us about Goldman Sachs here. It, it feels like they kind of got a little bit off track with that retail push and maybe that uh, took some attention away from some of their businesses. Yes, it is a tough environment, but Goldman Sachs is still Goldman Sachs, right? They are, and you know, they're, you're seeing the other side of volatility to yep. some extent, right? So, I mean, the, the the ROE is very tough this quarter. Includes a lot of one timers. There's some charges. There's, you know, they're working towards a longer term strategy, and I think they're doing the right things. The the alternative strategy you're really showing this quarter why that they're implementing that in terms of moving to a model that's more focused on fees and managing assets for clients versus taking the risks directly on their balance sheet which is something that regulators have wanted them to move away from for a long time um, so they had that charge um, they also had the charge related to green sky mm -hmm. um, offset by a little small uh, gain related to some sale of Marcus loans I think you know moving away from those businesses also strategically the right thing for Goldman. Focus on what what you're good at. Um, unfortunately, it's a tough quarter for the business, but equities trading up one yeah. percent. I mean, that's impressive in this quarter, yeah. um, and that's you know it's a prime brokerage business, and that shows that they're executing on what they do well. So when it comes to the consumer business and Green Sky, like you mentioned, is part of what we're seeing right now with Goldman just some pain that they have to go through to kind of have this transition out of and away from those two things? Yeah, I mean, in general, when you shift strategy and do some kind of restructuring, you know, first of all, it's never in a straight line and there's always mm -hmm. charges uh, be before you sort of move on to the better stuff because they were performing while you probably are, were not businesses that you're getting rid of. Um, right. And um, so it's tough for them to take the impairment and shows that that was, that was not an asset uh, purchased well. Yeah. Um, but I think that on the cost side of things, if we strip out these um, costs, there's, there still is a little bit more work to do. Mm -hmm. So they do, you know, they want to get to a 60% cost ratio over the cycle. They're at about 70% once, once you make all the adjustments. So um, part of that is the tougher part of the cycle. Um, so we, I talked about equity tra trading, which was a real positive. FIC trading was, was weak as expected. You know, Goldman and, and Morgan Stanley especially, you're seeing big declines because they had such good quarters a year ago due to commodities. And on the banking side, Goldman is the M&A revenue leader, mm -hmm. as, as you know, Paul, yep. from uh, competing with them in the past. That So they, you know, the league tables move around, but that that's a big... Um, chunk for them and that's just going the wrong way right now for the industry we're hearing a lot of constructive comments about the pickup there um, and uh, you know you you've also mentioned from some folks you know yep. uh, mm -hmm. hearing some positive comments but those are really not going to play out in the second mm -hmm. half that's a 2024 story all right let's mm -hmm. step back and just talk regulation not so much for for Goldman per se but just for the banks it, all right post financial crisis a lot of new regulations came on the industry. Fine, we get it. Uh, there had to be some response and probably well-deserved regulations. I would have thought, and over time, a lot of those regulations would just kind of fall to the wayside, peel back. But now the discussion is actually even for more regulations. What is driving that, mm. that need for more regulation of the banks? I know Jamie Dimon's been a big uh, spokesperson kind of against that, with, along with Brian Moynihan, right. Bank so, of America. 
So there's two things, um, you know, first, which is on, you know, the, the quote, smaller banks, but, mm -hmm. you know, not the not the biggest banks that okay. I cover. Right. So we had the issues in March that did raise a lot of questions of, you know, some of the things that were rolled back. OK. Should they have been? OK. And so I think that sort of, um, you know, to your point, things started to roll back. But now the question was, like, was that the right thing to do? Um, the second part that's uh, more germane to the banks that I cover, which is Basel III Endgame, which we hope is finally the end. Mm -hmm. um, so, again, we've had all these regulations over the years. Um, you know, there's some st some still finalization that we're expecting any day now for the last few weeks. And I think that why you're hearing the bank management's um, complain is that, you know, first of all, the, the way that the Basel works, because you hear this term a lot, right? So Basel is really an entity that sort of sets the guidelines and then uh, the jurisdictions go out and implement those. So the U.S. Ha has a lot of other very strict regulations that other countries don't have, right? Mm -hmm. So we have the stress test yep. every year. That adds a lot of volatility. Um, and, and that really is very punitive to the trading books of banks. Yep. Yeah. This... Basel III Endgame, uh, again, supposedly from what we've heard from the, the proposal outlines, is also going to be tough on the trading books of banks. So do you really need to have this sort of double whammy and these different types of conflicting regulations that, um, you know, really make it very difficult? And I think, you know, what the bank managements will say is you might make the bank safer, but the, the risks will still be there and they'll be outside mm. of the system. Yep. And is that really what you want, unintended consequences? Because that goes to just to a business that Maddie and I talk to uh, talk about a lot, which is the private credit business. Private, yeah. And 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 these private yes. creditors come in with almost these Cheshire smiles. You know, they're like, <laughs> I can't believe how good it is for us now because the banks have so much regulation right. yeah. that they're reluctant to put some of these loans on their books. And so the 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 borrowers, big private equity shops, are coming to us, and we're making money hand over right. fist here. And if you look at if you looked at a very long term chart of banks, you know, since the crisis, you will see the huge growth of credit in the non bank sector, yeah. shadow bank, whatever you want to call it. Private credit is yep. the, is is certainly a huge player there, and then the decrease on banks' balance sheets. Um, but again, like these private credit firms are getting their you know they're raising capital, yep. uh, uh, you know, from someone. Um, and if you think about it, you know, the private private credit is really sort of the talk of the entire asset management industry, even the yeah. traditional managers buying into private credit, the private equity managers building up their private credit mm -hmm. businesses. So you have all this money going there. There's more talk about getting this into pension portfolios and other portfolios. So you can think about, you know, sort of where the risks and who's going to bear those risks and how that's all shaping I'm up. I'm thinking about going into the private credit. See, I went through the we Chase Manhattan <laughs> Bank, the Chase Manhattan Bank credit training, which was is the best on Wall Street at, at back back in the day. I can take those skills and go to private credit. There you go. I should have done it. I mean, there's still time for me, you guys. I can get an MBA tomorrow. Um, Allison, I want to ask you a weird one in our final minute and a half with you. Um, a lot of my friends got the Apple savings card with Goldman. Uh, what do I need to tell them? Are they going to get ditched by Goldman any day now? What's going on with I that? I mean, they, they probably don't even know that Goldman's involved, except <laughs> that you probably told them that. Yeah. Um, and that's why those Does cards, are, those cards are generally yeah. called private label. So what Goldman had said, right, was that they were getting away from Marcus. They did keep the GM relationship, the Apple relationship, where there is some kind of a relationship. But in general, when those relationships fall apart, it's, it tends to be because the economics just aren't working mm -hmm. um, for one or someone else is coming in and willing to accept lower economics so yeah. you know and of course we never know that we never know that or most of us never know exactly what happens but um you know that could be the case that someone's coming in and just you know more interested in the credit card business and now that it's not so strategically important for goldman right you know will they be willing to sort of give that away and it's it's also been interesting right so the other side of it is the deposit gathering business and mm -hmm. you see Apple's introducing this new product, but then you have the Marcus product and you see the yields on both of those and kind of competing. Yep. And, you know, where would, you know, Goldman like those? They, they obviously would like to get 100% of the economics where they can. Mm, right. Okay. Thank All you right, Allison. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. I know this is a busy, busy uh, few days for you. Allison Williams, she covers all the banks on a global basis for Bloomberg Intelligence. She's also the director of research for the U.S. business for Bloomberg Intelligence. So we appreciate getting some of her time here in the uh, Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. 
held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Madison, when I bought the uh, Jersey Shore compound earlier yes. this year, my mortgage uh, had a six handle on it, and I was not happy. Oh, uh, just got rooked at because I know Matt Miller's is, I think, sub three oh. uh, on his estate up in Westchester. But I'm looking at the bank rate com U.S. home mortgage 30-year fixed national average today, 7.15%. So maybe I'm not that dumb of a buyer. But um, anywho, where are mortgage rates going? What's going on in that market? Um, I have no idea uh, other than we call Erica Adelberg. She's an MBS strategist. That's mortgage-backed securities for you uh, out there. Uh, for Bloomberg Intelligence, she joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So Erica, how are mortgage-backed securities, how's the market in 2023 so far year-to-date? Hi, uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, the market is actually just barely up, I think, on an excess return basis. Yep. But, and it, it's, we actually have, rate, rates are up 100, as you pointed out. They're up about 100 basis points um, in terms of primary mortgage rates year over year. But they are off their recent peaks. So at least you didn't take out a 7.35% <laughs> mortgage <laughs> last week or so. Um, as you know, they, they rates had you know fled higher once again when non-farm payrolls came in a little stronger than some people had hoped or expected. But there has been some retreat in that again with CPI coming in a little bit lower. So um, you know we're we're still closer to the highs than the lows, but you know we are off the tippy top. Um, but anytime you have mortgage rates around or above seven percent it probably is restrictive on an affordability basis for quite a few people. Yeah, well, it's really interesting. I know that you know all about this, but this Redfin report was fascinating to me, uh, showing that just 1% of the nation's homes have changed hands this year. And they also have data showing that 90% of Americans do have a mortgage under 6%. So why would anyone ever be incentivized to let that go when, like you said, Paul, mm -hmm. now we're at the seven handle. Um, what could be the catalyst for people to start to say it's time to uh, leave behind my home and get a new mortgage? I mean, to state the obvious, life happens. You know, yep. people right. have kids. <laughs> you know, there's divorces. Yeah. There's you know, so over time, and and I mean, if you look at the very long range average, it's not like seven percent is it's it's high, but you know, we, we've had rates a lot higher. It seems like all of our, you know. Um, older siblings or parents, depending on what generation we're in, uh, you know, at one point probably had rates that were seven, uh, seven to 10% or, you know, even higher. Um, you know, of course, all those people have now refinanced to two and a half percent if they still right. have mortgages. But um, is that the move then for people listening? Just if you are waiting to buy a home, don't wait, just do it now and refinance. That, that's that's certainly what a new home builder would tell you. Yeah. <laughs> and, and new home builders are, uh, you know, that that's that's really the game in town right now because, as you just mentioned, except for the people who do have to move for one reason or another, very few people are listing their, their homes. You know, the numbers mm -hmm. on listings are extremely low. So the resale market, as they call it, is or existing home market is very slow. But new home builders, as John just alluded to, uh, permits and starts are up. Uh, new home sales, new home inventories are about a third of existing homes of, of homes listed for sale these days, and the new home builders are finding ways to incentivize um, first-time home buyers and, and you know even some move-up mm -hmm. buyers by offering them slightly lower rates. Mm -hmm. What's interesting, I was reading just the other day that some of these buy-downs, as they call it were relatively temporary. They offered like a three to one buy down where it's basically only good for three years. The first year oh. they buy down the rate for three years, then two, then one. They have to qualify them at the higher mortgage rate. So, you know, unlikely to be another subprime teaser mortgage mm -hmm. rate, but it might become as a rate shock. Maybe some people had expected, as you mentioned, rates to fall sooner and to be able to refinance in to that time. And that's what the home builders are selling. They're like, you know, for right now, we'll give you a lower rate. You'll, surely you'll be able to refi in a year or two. Some of those people certainly haven't been able to. Yeah, I kind of thought 
I gave myself 12 months, which I still have plenty, plenty of time, that I'd refinance with a four-handle. And uh, I'm not sure that's going to happen, but we'll see. But I will refinance low. I'm not, not too concerned about that. All right, so talk to us about uh, – I think about office space. And in some of the biggest cities, there's so much office space. And people are telling us that's going to be a real problem for the lenders and so on and so forth. How does that impact your, your market, the mortgage-backed securities market? I, I think the actual office space, there's two ways it could impact it. For one thing, as we've just mentioned, there is a bit of a lack of availability of homes for sale for those who do want to get into the market. Um, you know, the new home builders are picking up. But actually, if you, if you look at the charts of permits and starts, we're a lot higher than we were in pre-pandemic levels, but that's because there had been 10 years post-financial crisis of underbuilding. So there's a big trough after 2009, 2008, <laughs> and it was just creeping slowly up uh, and then mm. shot up during the pandemic. Um, so we're well, we're about 20% below pandemic levels. We're well above the where we were in the 10 years beforehand. But what that means, that's the other reason there are so few homes being listed. Not only are people locked into their mortgages, but honestly, there was probably a structural underbuilding of new homes to begin right. with. So some of the people have talked about converting some of this office space mm -hmm. into residential loans. That's my dream. Uh, residential homes, yeah. which, which could offer more opportunities. But you know, from a macro perspective, um, loans that were made to office spaces that are now falling in price, maybe even underwater, those have to be refinanced or reconstructed every, yep. you know, uh, on a more regular basis. And that could be a drag for lenders, which whenever you have a drag in the banking industry, uh, can be a drag yep. generally for the economy. Is, is the decrease in construction costs and um, kind of the alleviation of some of the deeper supply chain issues of the pandemic having an impact on home builders that will ever get cost on, passed on to uh, home buyers? Yeah, actually, in some ways, it already is. Okay. If you look at the difference between the median new home price and the median existing home price, mm -hmm. because existing home prices haven't fallen maybe as quickly as some would have expected given the lack of listing, the difference between those is almost a, a record tight. Like, new homes are normally mm -hmm. more expensive. Right. But right, right. now, they're, they're just very marginally more expensive. So That's I think some of that, whether it's you know through price concessions, which actually builders say they're not really offering as much anymore, or just costs coming down relative to what they had been. Uh, I think that already is manifesting itself. And some people have even, yeah, I've read some people even calling for new homes to be priced below existing homes. And again, this is all median wow. prices. So this is not adjusted for square footage or anything, mm -hmm. but it's an interesting um, you know, potential. ESG, environmental mm -hmm. social governance, is that kind of a part of the mortgage lending market as well? It, it is interesting. I, I put out a note yesterday that you may have seen, mm -hmm. might be referring to. And first of all, in terms of Ginny Mae mortgages, those backed by FHA, for instance, in some ways those were already fundamentally ESG loans because they're targeted towards trying to improve affordability okay. for lower income and higher LTV borrowers. Now, Fannie and Freddie have also started to highlight they, their efforts. They, they've, always, they, they've always had a little bit of a mandate there anyway and their duty, duty to serve but they have these new social uh, criteria scores and social density scores that they're publishing that are available here on the terminal that tell you just how many of these socially responsible criteria they're fitting. And in the research that we put out yesterday, we pointed out that some of these highest social responsibility loans are actually in some ways uh, offer the best risk reward characteristics hmm. because a lot of these homeowners are a little more restricted from refinancing but at the same time, they may have more, in, more um, incentive to be move-up borrowers, for instance. Uh, so they tend to have less extension risk, too. All right. Interesting stuff. Always uh, talking about the housing market, the mortgage market. Everybody uh, has uh, their thoughts and opinions. Erica Edelberg, uh, we could pay her to have for those opinions and that analysis. <laughs> Erica Edelberg, she's a mortgage-backed security strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive uh, Broker Studio. And again, that... You know, the bankrate.com average mortgage rate for 30-year uh, mortgage, 7.15%. You know, uh, yeah. It's off the highs, as uh, Erica was just mentioning, but uh, certainly a lot higher than a lot of people want to deal with. And the question is, to what extent and when will that come down? You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. The 
TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. You know, every once in a while, we like to get a sense of kind of where high net worth investors are putting their capital these days. And to do that, we check in with Michael Sonnenfeld. He's the chairman and founder of Tiger 21. Tiger 21 is a network of learning groups for high net worth uh, investors. Uh, we usually get some really interesting uh, perspective from, from Michael. So Michael, again, the first half of the year was a lot better for uh, most investors in 2022, where you really had nowhere to hide last year, whether it was equities or fixed income, maybe some of your alternative investments did better. What are your members saying today? How did they feel here in mid-July after what was a pretty good first half of the year? Um, nice to see you guys. And uh, you know, our members are mixed like uh, the reports that you've been sharing all morning. On the one hand, inflation is coming down, the business climate is good, unemployment is low. And it, but everybody thinks that we're sort of at the crest, or many people think we're at the crest, and at least half of our members think we're going into recession. And when you have this kind of diversity, uh, our members try and create something like an all-weather portfolio where they have some bets on the upside and protection on the downside. And uh, that's sort of been the, the magic quest that they're looking for in preserving their wealth. Part of the flows into the S&P, obviously related to the Magnificent Seven, are related to the AI rally. Uh, I wonder to what extent your clients experience FOMO when something like an AI rally is happening, or are they kind of immune to that? So uh, I just have to say, uh, we don't have clients, we only have members. These are all entrepreneurs <laughs> who have no problem. Uh, uh, these are all people who built great businesses and now we're preserving wealth. But I don't think it's so much FOMO because our members have been playing AI. Over 56% of our members uh, either have or intend to make AI investment plays. And one of the things that's really different about AI, if you think about recent fads, either in crypto or the web 20 years ago, when you had these technology plays, you didn't have the equivalent of a Microsoft, which is already a cash flowing company, also be the technology play. If you want to play AI, of course, there's lots of small venture capital opportunities, but the best opportunities many of our members think are in like the Microsoft and the yeah. Googles that have the largest AI treasure troves, and yet they're really solid businesses. So it's very, it's a unique moment in AI that this kind of fad, I don't mean that it's unimportant, I mean this flavor of what everybody is focused on you're not taking the kind of extraordinary risks that most other technology rallies require, because here you have companies that have real profits and real businesses and uh, real futures, no matter what happens on AI, but it'll be really enhanced as they roll out and continue to build the, their AI functions. Hey, Michael, how about alternative investments? I mean, your members, they sell oftentimes their businesses for tens or hundreds of millions of dollars, and then they ha really have to allocate capital across a portfolio. How is investing in alternative investments, whether it's hedge funds or private equity or private credit, how sure. has that changed over the last decade for your members? So the two biggest changes, uh, the single biggest is that private equity 15 years ago was about 10% of our members' portfolios. Today, our members manage $150 billion and private equity is just about 30%. Wow, That's been the biggest change and a big portion of that private equity is uh, venture capital because uh, a period of time ago, you wouldn't have even seen venture capital 15 years. And now we think that's the largest sub-segment of private equity. But on the other side, more recently, the biggest downshift we've ever seen is in real estate. Real estate was king for 15 years, bouncing between 27 and 30%. And in the last year, it came down quite precipitously to around 22%. And, uh, you know, our members are exquisitely sensitive to interest rates. And as interest rates are going up, that uh, takes some of the potential off the table for real estate. But as your last speaker was mentioning, office, uh, which was one of the most solid areas in the real estate area is now up for grabs. A lot of mm -hmm. problems, not just with vacancies, uh, but you know where offices were easy to lever. 
And so as buildings, they probably are more highly levered and the equity is more at risk. And behind that on the negative would be retail and on mm. the positive side would be uh, industrial. But uh, the office, you know, where the office is going is one of the great conundrums that will only figure out over the next decade. Well, that's one of the things I find interesting about these member feedback results you sent us uh, is that you you asked about their most favorite public equity sectors, and uh, they're tied. 24% said real estate and 24% said IT. I'm fascinated uh, that real estate is getting as much love as the IT space, given the big tech rally that we've seen this year. Can you help me make sense of that? Sure. Um, our members are, by accomplishment, about one in 10,000, equivalent to being in the major league. And the largest area our members created wealth in, maybe a quarter of our members, was in real estate. So you have extraordinary knowledge that most investors don't have. That's the advantage of being in one of our groups and being with somebody who built their career in real estate. So my guess is that Real estate has been beaten up in certain areas, and our members are a little more attuned. The The big question mm-hmm. we ask in a meeting is, if you buy something at 20 and it goes down to 15, should you get out? And the answer is, if you really knew what you were investing at 20 and it goes down to 15, it's a better deal. But as I think you guys well know, uh, over the history of the stock market, individual investors have never matched the returns because they buy at the wrong time and sell at the wrong time. And so I think the high interest in real estate opportunities shows the sort of expertise that our members has looking for deals and navigating in this uh, volatile climate. Hey, Michael, real quick, just give us the latest on kind of um, estate planning. What are your members kind of focused on these days? Well, first of all, there's a big date coming up at the end of 2025 where some of the major estate planning tools will sunset. Um, But, you know, I think our members are focused on um, the tension between giving kids too much (laughs) and and ruining essentially what they saw was their entrepreneurial ability to be successful. So this notion, uh, this notion of uh, trying to figure out what what to do and how much to leave. So You know, there's something called the giving pledge among billionaires where they get half of their money to foundation and philanthropy. And a lot of our members are thinking about philanthropy in a new way, particularly with all the problems that are in the world today. All right, Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Always a unique perspective there. Michael Sonnenfeld, he's the chairman and founder of Tiger 21, a kind of collection of high net worth individuals get a really interesting perspective how they allocate capital across uh, the sectors. You're listening to The Taint. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. We've been hearing from a lot of the big banks over the last four or five days uh, talking about their business net net interest income uh, uh, positive, but certainly offset by a lack of deal making for a lot of these Companies, the comparisons are very tough. Uh, we want to get a sense of what's happening in the M&A space. We talked to Rob Brown. He's the CEO of Lincoln International. He joins us here live in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. They're based in Chicago, one of my favorite towns anywhere. Uh, Rob, thanks for joining us here. Talk to us about kind of the M&A environment we're seeing out there now. Um, a lot of uncertainty about the economy, and that historically doesn't really bode well for you know boards and CEOs getting out there and putting big capital to work. What are you seeing in your practice? Yeah, you know, I I think what what you just alluded to, Paul, is what we've seen really over the last eight months to a year, right? The 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 economic uncertainty uh, really slowing down the M and A market, and you're seeing it in in the release of some of the big banks and, and even Goldman's uh, uh, release today, and in, yep. in the investment banking business being down. Um, so I think that's what we've seen. Interestingly. Uh, there's some alchemy right now for uh, improved activity. And I think there's really four factors that are driving that. I think one is, uh, if you go back to how we came into the year, there seems to be more consensus uh, of a soft landing or at least not a really hard landing. Yep. And and I think there was always that fear of investors saying, well, I don't want to put something to work and have the bottom fall out of the economy. So I think the backdrop is we may have a recession, but it's probably not going to be as severe as I thought. I think the other... Uh, the other key input here is that 
as each quarter has gone by since probably mid-year last year when you saw inflation spike and the Fed respond aggressively, uh, you're seeing sellers' expectations moderate down a bit. Okay. So, you know, 2021 and the first half of 2022 were really peak valuations. So I think as time has gone on, sellers are starting to realize I may not be able to sell it for exactly what I could, but I can still get a good return. So, and I think the two last pieces are, we are seeing the aperture of the private credit markets improve a bit. The, the, the credit markets are actually hardening up in a good way and that lenders are saying, I will finance this deal. It's gonna be expensive, right? Rates are high, mm -hmm. uh, but, but they're gonna be there. And the last and maybe the biggest driver is the amount of dry powder sitting yeah. in institutional yeah. equity holders, in private equity, venture capital, and even the private debt funds. It's starting to burn a hole in the pocket of investors. And on top of that, they're under pressure to show some returns and return some capital to, to raise the next fund. So I think all of that kind of pointing, maybe not up hugely, but starting to trend in the right direction, I think we're expecting much better activity for the back half of the year than the first half. Well, Paul and I talk about this all the time, just that it's a challenging environment to get deals done in. I'm curious how your conversations and strategies have shifted, if at all, uh, given some of the hawkishness that we've seen from the FTC, from the Justice Department when it comes to M&A deals. Well, there's, there's no doubt about that. I mean, we're all trying to wait and see what comes out of the new proposed FTC rules for Hart Scott Redino and, and clearance. And, and we're in a comment period on that. And I know our industry is commenting aggressively mm -hmm. to, uh, we, we understand, listen, these rules haven't been changed in 40 or 50 years. It's okay to revisit them, mm. but you know, I think they need to be done uh, in a way that's gonna achieve the objective. So there is worry about that. Um, but I think your point is right. Deals are harder to get done. I think what we're seeing is more targeted processes um, making sure you have financing lined up before you approach anybody, uh, and really going to investors with a pretty compelling investment thesis that says, listen, you know, uh, we know you, we know what you like to acquire, here's why you really need to look at this. Um, but, but it's more challenging to get things done, right? You gotta get the financing in place. I think the leverage has shifted a bit to the, uh, to the buyers in terms of dictating the mm -hmm. due diligence schedules and dictating what they need to get done. Um, but, but we are seeing things get done. They're, they're taking longer, they're a little more mm -hmm. painful, but, but they're getting done. Talk to us about the role of private credit, because uh, that's kind of a relatively new business in Madison and I. We, we spent a lot of time talking about, we try to speak to as many smart people as we can about the private credit business, because really it's really just became a, a big source of capital after the, uh, the financial crisis. How does that factor into your deals? You typically do more middle market yep. tra transactions. How does that factor into your it, deal? It, it factors in massively. Okay. Uh, most of our deals, particularly if we're selling to uh, a financial sponsor, a private equity group, or, or an institutional investor, a good chunk of our deals are going to need leverage to get done. And the entire market for that is the private credit market. I mean, the banks have, you know, the, 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 the compliance issues coming out of the global financial crisis, the banks are out of this market. So now you're dealing with private credit funds, hedge funds, Unitronch investors, and um, that market uh, has attracted a tremendous amount of capital over the last decade. And, and they have yep. a lot of dry powder too, yep. um, but that market really closing up a bit in the back half of the last year, right. uh, as much as the fear of the economy downturning, is what really casts a little bit of a pall over, over our market. So what happens in that market is a, is a really important driver of, mm. of the, overall private, the overall private capital markets and the deals that get done on the private market. Did some of the banking turmoil have any impact on you guys via the impact on private credit? Um, you, you know, a, 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 not really. I yeah. think particularly if you look at SVB, there was a little bit of a yeah. shock as to, you know, what does that mean? But they were really in the venture debt market. And, mm -hmm. and, and so the short answer is not really. Although one thing I will say that's interesting is our European M&A business, and we have, we have um, offices in, in 16 countries, 20 offices. We've got a lot of offices in Europe. It's a big part of our business. That M&A market is actually holding up better than the U.S. M&A market this year, uh, partly because there still is a bank lending market in some of the major economies to get deals done, where we don't have that here. So they've been able to look through some of the private credit markets, uh, pulling their horns in. Um, I think they also have a situation where in the U.K., the largest... Uh, capital market in Europe. Uh, they're worried about a labor government next year and cap gains rates going up. So there's a little bit mm. of a push to get things done now. But more regulation in the UK definitely, than ever as well. Definitely. I think the regulation headwinds are going to be everywhere. Okay. You guys are a lot bigger than I thought you were. Um, <laughs> I'm just reading some reporting. You guys did it recently, got into Australia, uh, India, 
you guys, you said you're in 16 countries. I'm seeing some reporting here, 850 investment bankers. Why aren't you guys public? Um, you know, we followed, we have followed our public investor, our, our public competitors, right? There's clearly an appetite for what we do. Um, I think for us, we have a pretty clearly stated goal to be the leading advisor in the private capital markets. And to date, we felt that being a private partnership is the right way to do that. Um, but we're constantly evaluating, should we have a different ownership structure and access to broader capital? Um, so it's something we haven't ruled out. And I think we've made some investments to uh, to be public company ready if and if and when we determine that's the right thing to do. What is the biggest benefit for you staying private then? Um, you know, for us, I think the thing we need to balance that what, what's made us unique and what's allowed us to grow from seven of us uh, to, to one of the largest uh, private markets M&A advisors in the world has been a real focus on culture that attracts people and keeps people for the long time, long term. And we've been able to define that, measure against it, manage to it uh, as a private company uh, without having to worry about what's going on in every single quarter. And you know, if we were to go public, we'd want to make sure that we can continue to really have that as the oxygen of everything we do. Um, so, and, and I think part of it's just different, right? We, we, we kind of know, we know the governance, yeah. we know how this works. But I think organizations, if they're going to evolve, if they're going to continue to grow, have to continually reevaluate, you know, what's the right capital structure and ownership structure to achieve our goals. So India, for example, um, a lot of folks are saying India over the next 20 years is going to be the, it's going to be China was the last 20 years maybe, for example, but better. How do you guys view, view it? Yeah, I, 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 I agree with that statement. We have been in India a long time. We've been in India over a decade. We are about to uh, announce in the very near term here uh, an acquisition in India that's going to materially increase our presence there. Um, as, and we also have offices in China. As we're, yep. seeing, as we're seeing those offices slow down, as we're seeing the economic ties really cool with China, we think that the biggest benefactor of that is going to be India. Uh, I mean, India, it's the largest democracy on the planet. Yeah. Their law is based on English common law. It's much easier to do business there. Um, and it's a really, really innovative economy. So I, we're, we're very bullish on uh, on what we're seeing in India right now and, and really doubling down in that market. And conversely, 20, 20 seconds left, China. Yeah, you know, I, I, I don't see in the near term, any sort of warming up of the economic ties with China. I think that um, it's very difficult to get a Chinese investor clear. We were talking about compliance, yep. trying to sell something to a Chinese buyer today in any Western country, yeah. very, very hard. Yeah. yeah, yeah, interesting. All right, Rob, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, fascinating uh, company, which I, didn't, I need to learn more about. Rob Brown, CEO of Lincoln International. They're based in the great city of Chicago, but as Rob was just saying, uh, these guys are all over, and uh, they focus on middle market M&A, which, as we've learned from a lot of people like Rob, a very lucrative business, competitive business, but very lucrative business. Um, and so we like pay attention to that as well. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Let's check in with Pooja Kumra. She's a European rate strategist at TD. Pooja, what did you make of the U.K. economic data, the inflation data that came out today? Good morning. Yes, never a dull moment in UK. <laughs> I think for the first time since February, the inflation did surprise the downside. And I think this has come as a big relief for the hawkish expectations that were actually playing out in UK. And right now, markets have actually moved the terminal expectations from close to 6.5 that we saw a month ago to actually 5.75, which seems much more reasonable. But as you say, inflation in UK is still very elevated. Food inflation is almost thrice the levels that we see in US. So I think we do have a long way to go, but on the positive side, going forward, the base effects, both energy and good prices should actually allow UK inflation to actually be more correlated to what we are seeing in UK and uh, we are, uh, in, sorry, in Europe. And we do see inflation to end the year around the four to 5% level, which is a big relief for BOE as well as Rishi Sunak. 
You mentioned the cost of food, and I wonder to what extent uh, your average, I'm going to steal this from Paul, uh, the watering hole attendees of the UK are able to feel any sort of decrease in the inflation numbers when they're still going out to get the same meal they would have gotten a year ago, and it's so much more expensive. Uh, Do you have a take on when the consumer in the UK might start to be able to feel any sort of decline to the red hot and inflation they've been experiencing? Yes, I mean, last six months have been pretty much uh, uh, high prices everywhere, but we are actually seeing prices going down when we go to all the supermarket as well as grocery stores there. We are actually getting emails from all the grocery chains that they are actually reducing prices. So I think there is some government pressure also involved. And also one of the key things that the government as well as the BOE is aware of is that we are going to get very big mortgage payments as we enter towards the end of the year and 2024. So household uh, buffer is actually going to be more compressed and it's going to be a slow mover, but definitely we are moving in the right direction. And that should be a good news for you, Ken. That's why at the current basis points rally in today's session. So, Pooch, as you talk to your institutional clients um, around the world and you're talking to them about the European rates business, What's kind of the most common trade that you're hearing people, I guess, are most interested in right right, right now? So right now, I think every uh, the U.S. CPI as well as the U.K. CPI have actually told us one thing, that we are done with this entire hiking story. One or two hikes, most central banks are done. And the key thing is how long we stay here. From a trading perspective, we like long duration, and I think that is something even investors are looking at. But I think after today's UK CPI report, one of the key trades that I like is being long UK versus bonds. Just given the fact that that I think Euro has rallied quite a bit when inflation will be equally sticky in Europe as compared to in UK as well. Are you thinking about currency quite a bit then in your calculations? Uh, When it comes to... uh, the general strong pound or as in yeah the strong pound and i guess particularly as we're starting to see the decline of the u.s dollar hitting a 14 month low last week uh, is that something that you think is going to be potentially a tail or headwind for you this year i think generally now it's the fed's show just because the fact that i mean so far what we had saw that uk was just not correlated with the moves in us as well as in europe just because we had the strength of inflation and boe actually had to come up more hawkish as well as hawk 50 basis points when most of the central banks are actually at the terminal but i think that pound strength should should actually be a little more muted and we should now be more driven by where Fed takes it from here, whether it's one hike or two hikes going forward. And I think that would be key when it comes to messaging going into next week's Fed meeting. And Pooja, to what extent, just give us a kind of little bit of a tutorial here, to what extent does the Bank of England and the European Central Bank, to what extent do they follow the U.S. Federal Reserve? Well, to quote unquote, I mean, at least on the central bank meetings, we are told that we are different. We have different uh, economic background to handle with. But I think Fed is one central bank that basically determines interest rate for the entire world. So I think one way or the other, when Fed actually decides to stop, it would actually mean that the other central banks also need to do less. So I think, yes, Fed still plays a very key role when it comes to where terminal comes for most central banks. And we think that next week the Fed is, uh, it seems like a foregone conclusion here in the States, a 25 basis point hike. Uh, When you look ahead to August for the ECB, is it going to be maybe down to 25 basis points after this inflation print? So uh, for when it comes to ECB, they've already told us that they will be doing a 25 basis point in July. I think the key question is whether they go 25 again in September. Uh, I think they, at this stage, they would like to maintain the optionality, but we have had hawks even coming in last this week saying that there's no need to press that much on terminal. So I think it is very much possible that we are done with one hike, but I think central banks right now, including Fed, 
wants to keep the optionality for going in September as well. And I think the key driver right now will be the uh, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the August Jackson Hole meeting. I think that would be mm. the stage, the next stage where central banks give us the key insight into what they are thinking for the September meeting. I think right now all central banks want a little more data to convince themselves whether it's one or two hikes and they're done. Hey, Pooja, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate getting your perspective. The European call there, the UK call on rates. Pooja Kumra, European rate strategist at TD. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. So, Madison, back in my sell-side research days, you'd have to schlep out to uh, San Francisco two or three times a year to see institutional investor clients out there. Love that town. Still one of my faves. Um... But then you'd have to go, not downtown, you'd have to go schlep all the way out to San Mateo to see these Franklin Templeton people. Now, it it wasn't a bad trip because they have a great Starbucks right there. But nice nice people, smart people, and they manage a bunch of money. So I still got some buddies uh, out there from back in the day. Ed Perks, he's out there in San Mateo. He's the CIO of Franklin Templeton uh, Income Investors. Ed, I mean, you got fixed income folks had a brutal 2022. There was just nowhere to hide off to a little bit better start this year. How are you guys positioned out there uh, with some of your uh, fixed income, you know, kind of asset allocations in your performance? Yeah, absolutely. You're right. 2022 was a tremendous challenge for fixed income investors. You know, I think the the, the key element for us, uh, for Franklin Income Investors, is uh, multi-asset flexibility. So uh, really, at, at, uh, at no other time in my career, really, have I seen this play out in a six to eight quarter way where, uh, we entered 2022 with a very strong bias and and tilt in our multi-asset portfolios towards dividend-paying common stocks, and uh, that was really um, just reflecting the you know, the landscape and the opportunity set uh, entering last year. Ten-year rates were, I think, we were down near one and a quarter still, one and a quarter, one and a half percent, and uh, you just uh, you just didn't have enough spread. And you know the key things that we look to fixed income for in our portfolios: uh, attractive yield. Um, potential for some some upside or or potential to help diversify our portfolio. And I tell you, you know, most of 2022, particularly the start of the year, we couldn't check any of those boxes. So uh, we've come full circle, though. And today we sit uh, from a, a tilt of nearly 75-25 in favor of equities um, eight to, to 12 quarters ago to now uh, better than 60-40 tilting to fixed income. So that landscape has totally changed. And yes, you, you are seeing it, whether you look at uh, uh, you know, broader aggregate bond market returns, investment grade corporate returns, high yield corporate returns, all uh, doing much better. A little paling in comparison to something like the NASDAQ move, but I think fixed income investors have uh, a lot to look forward to. Well, okay, since you brought up the NASDAQ move, I just have to ask you about this. We saw the NASDAQ dip into the red a couple minutes ago because of some moves that we're seeing in the big tech names, the Microsofts, the Googles. Um, it feels like the perfect example of why it's a challenge when you have this breadth of of names leading the charge when it comes to these indices. Uh, is that a concern for you that you think about in terms of your allocation into equities? You know, it, it, it as it relates to the NASDAQ in particular, um, given, given we're income investors, we really aren't too concerned about um, you know, some of those moves or, or the narrowness of the leadership. Uh, I know that's well been well discussed in, in markets here the last couple of months. Um, you know, we're really focused on this kind of broader move. So we, we clearly point more to, you know, the S&P 500, both uh, the, uh, the, the difference we've seen, the dispersion we've seen year to date between something like the market cap weighted index and the equal weighted index. Um, you know, that's starting to uh, perform a little bit better. Uh, but we wouldn't be surprised if there's a pretty significant breather here in in equity markets. And, uh, you know, we are going to see 
Um, you know, we'll see even even with companies reporting slightly better earnings, we're still looking at at uh, uh, likely flat to slightly negative year over year earnings. And that's something that, you know, we think as you look forward into the end of 23 and, and particularly into 2024, this this bar, the hurdle really starts to rise because consensus um, really bakes in uh, a resurgence in growth in mm -hmm. Q4 and then into 2024. And we just think that uh, maybe a little premature. You know, we're still looking at a pretty modest level of GDP growth. We're seeing disinflation. We think a lot of companies have actually had a bit more of a struggle with uh, with unit volumes, but have had tremendous pricing. Uh, that's going to start to wane and certainly become much tougher with uh, with comps. So, um, you know, we wouldn't be surprised if uh, the remainder of this year might tilt a little bit more to some of the fixed income. Uh, markets and, and equities have some uh, digesting to do of this very big move they've had. Hey, Ed, in the fixed income space, you know, as income investors, where are you guys kind of putting your money to work? Where, where have you been putting your money to work this year? Yeah, we, we've really focused on on some of the higher quality segments within investment grade corporates. And that's a, a big difference from, um, you know, last year where we short, we started with much shorter duration. Um, we're very selective, actually liked high yield bonds. We didn't see the economy completely uh, cratering. And in high yield, you can find some really interesting opportunities with very minimal interest rate risk um, as rates move first into the fall last year, then this spring before the regional banking crisis. And then more recently, we've had you know opportunities with the 10 year in and around 4% uh, through that level a couple of times. And, uh, and spreads, while not maybe as wide as a lot of credit investors um, would would uh, you know would ideally like to see um, you had uh, yields at levels that we haven't seen in a while. You had bond yep. prices because of last year's decimation at, at much more attractive discounts to to face. Um, and and like I said before, you know you want to check some of these boxes and fixed income today, particularly yep. higher quality investment grade corporates. You now have that opportunity. Income's attractive. Total return possibilities are there as we think rates do decline over the next four to six quarters. And they're nice diversification again in a multi-asset portfolio. Right. Hey, Ed, why don't you in your lunch break hop down on the 101, go a little bit south to Cupertino, see our friends there that make cell phones, and tell them to step up and pay a real dividend. Does that frustrate hmm. you as an income investor that you got a company with a gajillion dollars of cash on the balance sheet, $100 billion of free cash flow every year, and they pay a dividend yield less than 1%? Yeah, you're preaching to the choir. We uh, <laughs> we certainly are strong advocates of that. We think it just makes sound sense. It it uh, broadens your investor base, and you know there are certainly other things that we can do with with uh, using convertible securities, for example, in our portfolios or or other structured equity like investments where you're kind of effectively doing some covered call writing and getting some premium. So you know we do have some opportunity in in, in lower dividend paying or non dividend paying stocks, but but uh, absolutely would firmly agree with you there all right if you see him you know tim cook around the the neighborhood mm -hmm. maybe put that in his ear ed perks cio franklin income investors out in san mateo uh giving us a, some good discussion on income investing thanks for listening to the bloomberg markets podcast you can subscribe and listen to interviews at apple podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer i'm matt miller i'm on twitter at matt miller 1973 and I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com.